0: The scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus asked his disciples, what do you think if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. If another member of the church sins against you, go point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and the tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. The word of the Lord
1: Let me read a few verses of scripture from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the second chapter. The Apostle Paul is the greatest missionary of the early Christian church and part of his ministry was to bring people of different backgrounds together in one body in one congregation all bound together by Jesus Christ. In his world the great divide Uh, between people was not black or white was not a racial thing as such but it was between Jews and Gentiles Jews and every other ethnicity in the world and the church he said should be composed of people from all of those backgrounds reconciled to one another through God so he's speaking here about the nature of God's love and our love for each other that flows from God's passion for human reconciliation to include you and me, in fact, within the family of God. So Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 11. Remember that before Christ came, all you non-Jews by birth were without Christ, aliens from God's family, Israel, strangers to the covenants promised by God, that God made his ancient people, having no hope and without God in the world. But now by Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ, by his loving, sacrificial death. For he is the source of our peace, peace with God, peace with each other. By his flesh, by what he did in his body, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between us, reconciling Jew and Gentile to God through the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let's pray. Holy God, in the stillness of this moment, we come before you hungering and thirsting for a word from you. Speak to us, we pray, through the word that we have read in Holy Scripture, through the life and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might know this day that we have met with you and heard your word and have been given power to live lives that are changed. For your sake and glory, we pray this. Amen. So in our sermons in recent months, we have been focusing on what I have called contours of faith, basic Christian faith. And in recent weeks, we've been thinking about God as a God who speaks, God who reveals God's self and God's will to us. God does this through nature. God does this through scripture. God does this through the person of Jesus. This is what we've been looking at. And it's the person of Jesus and the revelation of God to us through the teaching of Jesus that I want us to think of today, and in particular, what Jesus says about love and the nature of love, Christian love, within our lives. This is the focus that I have in mind. Thirteen years ago, in an academic study called Souls in Transition, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of Emerging Adults, Notre Dame sociologist, Christian Smith, wrote this stunning paragraph about the opinions of teenagers and 20-somethings whom he interviewed, an extensive number of them. He writes this, he says, the majority of those interviewed stated that nobody has any natural or general responsibility or obligation to help other people. It's nice if people help others, but nobody has to. Taking care of other people in need is an individual's choice. If you want to do it good, If not, that's up to you. Even when pressed about victims of natural disasters, political oppression, disabilities, famines, floods, tsunamis, and so forth, no, they replied. If someone wants to help, then good for them. But nobody has to. Now to me this is a pretty stunning approach to life and we might hope that it's exaggerated or theoretical that in practice, in dire circumstances, that love actually would be shown by those who were interviewed here, if only as a matter of pragmatism, the golden rule, you know, someone needs to take care of me at some time, something's going to happen, I want somebody to be there for me, I'd better be in the business of doing that for somebody else, uh, if that favor is ever going to be returned. So you might have a cynical way of explaining that, but that might be a reason to do it. But we have to think a little bit about why this particular way of thinking that we have an obligation to others in our society seems to have disappeared, not completely, but in large measure in this particular group. And one explanation would be, well, uh, this call to have an obligation to care for others is actually profoundly biblical, profoundly Christian, and as Christian ethos begins to disappear in our society, then so too is love as a natural response in particular circumstances of life and we've seen a massive decline in uh, church attendance and an affiliation with uh, Christian church in in recent years and so maybe part of the explanation for this lies in that decline that it's not being taught therefore people don't think about it but when Christian Smith did his study while this might be part of the explanation for this stunning response that we really have no necessary reason to connect with other people or to help them when they are in trouble, part of the discovery here was that those who felt this way were not just those who are numbered amongst those who've forgotten all about God and have no religious affiliation at all. Uh, we call these people nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Recent studies describe the growing number of those with no religious affiliation Uh, uh, at all. But what he discovered was that among those who thought this way, no necessary reason to connect, no necessary reason to help, were those who said, yes, I do believe in God, and I do believe in Jesus, but still I don't think that I have an obligation to step into the life of somebody else, even when they are in dire distress. In fact, Christian Smith coined a phrase to describe this prevalent kind of belief. He called it Therapeutic moralistic deism and you probably need to say that. Let me ask you just to say it with me. Therapeutic moralistic deism. Remember it because it's prevalent in our society. Therapeutic because the purpose of God is to sort of bring us comfort to make life good for us no matter where we are in life. Take away all the pain and the suffering and the trouble. Moralistic because, yes, we sort of believe that uh, God wants us to be good and will reward those who are generally good and nice people. And deistic or deism, because, yeah, there is a God, but this God is sort of out there, doesn't interfere too much in life, don't really want this God to interfere too much in life. God is out there, is around about, so it's therapeutic, moralistic deism. And if we read the Bible, we'd have to admit there's a certain measure of truth in this understanding of God and in this approach to life. Because God certainly is way out there. I mean, all the way out there, God is out there. And God certainly does want us in a general sort of a way to be good and nice most of the time. And God is a rewarder of the faithful. The letter to the Hebrews spells that out quite specifically and absolutely wants to bring his comfort into our lives. God wants to bring us comfort and joy. But when we read the Bible a little bit more clearly, what we discover is that while this is the truth, it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. There's truth in this, but it's not the whole truth. In fact, I think it's a half truth, which is actually quite misleading at times and misses some things which are really important. One of those things that's missing is this, that while God certainly wants to bring us comfort and joy, the fullness of that comfort and joy actually awaits us in heaven in the future. And here on earth, on the path towards that comfort and joy, while there's enormous comfort and joy in knowing God, and in fact in knowing that God is not just out there but intimately involved in our lives, while that is the case, uh, God really wants us in this world to live a life which is combining comfort and struggle as we seek to love one another to our fullest ability. The timeline is such that we're not in heaven yet. We're here on earth, caught between heaven and earth. And the love and the path that God calls us to follow on is one, yes, of comfort and joy, but it's also side by side with that, one of sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. And that's missed and so many of those who were interviewed by Christian Smith and perhaps with others as well. This kind of love that Jesus teaches us to have here on earth is not optional. This connecting of our lives with others is not optional, but it's mandatory. And it's more than about merely being nice from time to time. It involves, the more we read about Jesus and the stories that he tells, it involves being, at the very least, inconvenienced. If it doesn't involve suffering, It involves being inconvenienced again and again and again. But at times actually, even though God wants to bring us comfort, the path towards that comfort will involve suffering. In a moment or two, we'll come to the communion table. And in the communion table, we have this illustration of the love that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ. And we will use these words that in his love, Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us the love he shows to us cost something and that's the kind of love that we've been called to show as well comfort yes God out there yes but actually God in here who wants to lead us on a path which at times might be quite uncomfortable last week for example and I want to share uh, three incidents in the gospel accounts about this last week I told the story of Jesus just a few hours before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, washing his disciples' feet, something that was, I think, profoundly uncomfortable. In washing Jesus' feet, he says to his disciples uh, that I've given you an example to follow. Indeed, it's not just an example which they could follow if they want to follow, but he says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And in the washing of feet he gives well an illustration of the kind of love with which he has loved us. This scene where Jesus washes his disciples feet just before his crucifixion and his death is in a place that we call the upper room. Sometimes when there are paintings some traditional paintings of this scene there's sort of a halo around Jesus head and around the heads of the disciples as if this was sort of holy and warm and kind of a cuddly atmosphere. But I think nothing could be further from the truth. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, those feet would have smelled. They would have been dirty. And in those days, they would have been sort of in the face of everyone as they uh, lounged on couches around the communion table. It wouldn't have been easy for Jesus to say, this is what I am going to do. And furthermore, I think Jesus could easily have said in his mind, in his heart at least, this isn't my job. It's their job. I'm their boss. If anybody should be washing feet, it should be them. But it was very clear that none of the disciples had any intention of entering into this inconvenient, uncomfortable act of washing the feet of those they had been with. Even though they'd been with Jesus, heard about love for two to three years at this particular time, and Jesus himself might have said, why did I bother? I've been teaching about this, but nobody seems to to get it to give of themselves in any way they just want the comfort but not the discomfort of real love and you add to that the fact that Jesus knew the future that these very people around the table with him would within a few hours abandon him leave him alone so that he dies unjustly on a cross you might well excuse Jesus if he were to say I'm not going to wash their feet either but the story tells us that he did this that there seems to be no grudge, seems to be no resentment. Jesus decides, uncomfortable as it was, inconvenient as it was, to set an example and to wash his disciples' feet. Love involves, more often than not, discomfort and inconvenience, and yes, at times, real sacrifice. Or think of the story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25. It's not a passage we've Uh, read or I've read uh, today but familiar to many of you it's about sheep and goats and the day of judgment a king who is coming who's going to pass judgment on all the people of the earth and the judgment Jesus says is based on the love and the connection that these people have with other people who generally speaking they they don't really know so the king says to the people he's pleased with he says, come, you that are blessed by my Father, you've made it through judgment, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked. You gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And these ones are blessed. They enter the kingdom because of all of this. Now, this is a pretty specific and exhaustive list of the kind of loving action that God made known in Jesus is looking from people like you and me and that God may bring up on the day of judgment. Truth is that none of this stuff that Jesus mentions is hard. Any person can do this kind of stuff. It's about giving food, drink, clothing, sharing, welcoming, caring, visiting. All of these things are within our reach. But the trouble is that very often we are not within reach or proximity of those who need these things desperately. In fact, here in the sanctuary and watching online, I suspect there, there are very few of us who are really hungry or really thirsty, or really absolutely alone, a stranger in the middle of nowhere. We may have some strangers uh, here or who feel that they're a stranger. Naked, sick, in prison. Generally speaking, not part of our congregation, which means that for people like us, if Jesus is speaking to us, we actually need to go out of our way in order to show this kind of love. It's gonna be inconvenient right from the very beginning to fulfill what Jesus calls us to do, the topic that God is gonna raise on the day of judgment, to love in this kind of way. We will have to work at making those connections. We may have to change our plans and our schedules and our calendars and our friends and we may have to check on our habits and see whether or not these habits are part of what we practice how much do we give of food and drink and clothing how welcoming are we when we really just want to be with our close friends caring and those out of sight out of mind those in prison Ooh, when was the last time we did that kind of thing not hard not hard as such but just something which will inconvenience us and that we have to be deliberate about in fact when it comes to fulfilling what Jesus says in Matthew 25 I actually think that Jesus provides for us this list because he knows in a way that none of us can do it all completely by ourselves that in order to do these things Jesus is actually thinking about the whole community of the church and the multiplicity of our ministries which encompass the different elements that Jesus raises in Matthew chapter 25. The part of the purpose of the church is to get organized so that those who are out of sight and out of mind are no longer out of sight or out of mind so that constantly we are helping one another to reach out to those who might not normally cross our paths, but who need help desperately day in, day out. We need other people to do this. We need the church to do this. But then this raises something else which is inconvenient. The more people you get together to do this kind of thing, the more planning you need, the more organizational structure you need. You need somebody in the background who says, I don't want to be out on Wednesday night to plan what's going to happen so that we can minister to people in our city on a Saturday or on a Sunday, but I'm willing to do that because that must take place in the background. The more people who mobilise, the more chaos is likely to be unless somebody in an act of love, I would suggest to you, spends their time organising and planning and doing something whether they feel like it or not that will help people to fulfil what Jesus ultimately wants us to do. In fact, I think that organising lies in the background of the parable and the story and the passage that we read as our scripture reading. It becomes explicit in the second part of that passage if you turn in your bulletin to the passage it's on page seven but it's there implicitly in the story of the one lost sheep and the shepherd who goes looking for that one lost sheep. Let me read you again from this uh, passage uh, that we read uh, earlier from Matthew 18. What do you think said Jesus? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. And presumably the positive side, it is God's will that this little one who is lost knows that he or she has been loved. In the story, as in many parables, much of the background is left out. But in the background, undoubtedly, the shepherd has a decision to make. Do I go or don't I go? I've got 99 sheep here, and there's one that's missing. And if the shepherd had been one of those interviewed by Christian Smith, the decision might have been, no, I don't need to go. It's not my obligation to go. It's not my fault or responsibility. In fact, that lost sheep knew all the instructions, didn't follow those instructions. That lost sheep is to blame. And where that lost sheep is, well, it's dangerous up in the mountains. There's a desert between here and there, and finding a sheep pen for the 99 other sheep is costly, expensive, and time-consuming. And I don't have time for that. All of these things actually in reality were probably true. The price of loving this little one sheep was not cheap. It was costly. In terms of inconvenience, loss of time, do I really want to do that or don't do that and the myriad of details that needed to be taken care of in the background. But like Jesus, with the washing of his disciples' feet, the shepherd in the story is not phased by that. That was his job, his calling. He did have a sense of obligation and connectedness with others around about, no matter what the cost. Not only to empathize with this little lost sheep filled with fear, perhaps in a place of danger, but enough energy invested in this love to bring that little lost lamb back into the fold. Reconciliation, the healing of a broken relationship, the taking of what was alone and bringing it into community. That's hard work. That's hard work but this is God's passion for us, this kind of work of love, this reconciliation, not just the caring but the bringing of people together in community. And so Jesus leaves the story of the lost sheep behind and immediately transitions into ruptures within the church community when love does not seem to be apparent or when love is lost or gone or where some conflict has arisen between two people, and this happens in real life. It happens within the church. It happens in other organizations as well. And Jesus takes this parable as his jumping-off point to say that no matter whose fault it is, if you are my follower, if love is important to you, it's your job to bring healing back into the situation. It's always your job, no matter whose fault it is, he says. And then he says you need to plan it to think carefully about the process of reconciliation he spells the process out in the chapter that we read step one step two step three to make sure that what you do doesn't end up worse than how you began jesus is not naive the jesus in the pages of scripture filled with wisdom about the realities of life and in this particular situation he realizes that every attempt at reconciliation well not all attempts are going to succeed there are going to be times when it just doesn't succeed you can do everything you can and you cannot restore the lost sheep to the fold but on the other hand the major point of the story as well as of the teaching that follows is that God's passion for us is to do whatever work is needed, inconvenient as it may be, as an act of love to bring healing to the broken relationships of life. So there are people who need care, there are people who need help, who are hungry and thirsty and so forth, and there are those whose hearts are broken or whose lives are broken because they're out of fellowship with other people. In all of those circumstances, the love that we are called to show is almost inevitably going to be inconvenient. And may well require us to think through the steps that we need to take listen again to the passage at verse 15. if another member of the church sins against you it's their fault step one go go it's a common biblical word God says it to Abraham go he says it to his disciples when he's about to ascend go into all the world and he says when there's a broken relationship you go Step two, point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you've regained that one. Step three and then steps four that follow after that. It may or may not work out, but you can expand the circle after you've done that one-on-one contact with those with whom you are somehow out of fellowship. Why this careful plan of Jesus? Well because when things go wrong there is such a human temptation for us to blame and shame somebody else in public so that we ourselves can stand tall and Jesus says don't do that it's between you and me and them go one-on-one and do what you can to bring restoration where anything has happened anything has happened so that there's reuniting and health And happiness and indeed comfort is restored but it may be uncomfortable in the process for you to do that indeed it almost certainly will be and why are we to do this why are we to have this sense of connection yes we do have an obligation as opposed to those whom Christian Smith interviewed and no it will not always be comfortable why do we have to live our lives this way well this is what God did for us this is the kind of love Jesus demonstrated not only in washing feet, but demonstrated in giving his life for us sacrificially. Body broken, blood shed, so that you and I could be restored to fellowship with God. You and I are that lost little lamb, and Jesus is the shepherd who comes searching for us. Body broken, blood shed, the price of our sin paid for, that we might be restored to perfect fellowship with God and with one another. Healing is God's passion. Simon Peter wants to put a limit on this healing. He says to Jesus afterwards, this is sort of impossible. How many times do we need to forgive Jesus? As many as seven times. No, says Jesus. Seventy-seven. God doesn't stop for you and me. And we are not to stop for others. Ah, this may take all my life to do this. Yes, says Jesus. Remember, says the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, that before Christ the shepherd came looking for you. You were without Christ, aliens from God's family Israel. We were that little lost sheep, strangers to the covenant promises of God, having no hope and without God in the world. But now because of Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near to God by his blood through the cross. Love that is costly, uncomfortable, inconvenient said the young adults to Christian Smith taking care of other people in need is an individual's choice if you want to do it good if not that's up to you well my friends thanks be to God that's not how God thinks about you and me nor is it the path on which God calls us to walk with each other of course God wants us to know his comfort there is plenty comfort in the gospel right here and now But there is eternal comfort later on, and that eternal comfort often lies through thorny paths and ways in which God leads us as faithful followers of the love shown to us in Jesus Christ. And our goal is to follow in that path which he sets for us and demonstrates in his life and death. May God give us strength to live our lives that way and to know God's comfort more than we ever have And joy, as we see other lives change through our love individually and together as a community. Let's pray. Holy God, look down upon us and help us to know how best to love, how best to care. Help us to name before you those whom it is most difficult to love. Fill our lives with a willingness to love as you have loved us. Hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.